So I want you to turn back the clock to the year 1994 when Amazon was founded. Barnes & Noble and Borders were these dominant players. Why couldn't they also dominate online bookselling? Welcome to Blitzscaling, a startup. Uh, I'm Julian Newman. I'm building my new uh, next startup. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I have the great luck of uh, having as my advisor the uh, man who wrote the book about Blitzscaling, uh, Chris Yeh co-author of Blitzscaling. Um, Chris's book was uh, you know, authored with the founder of LinkedIn. The introduction is written by Bill Gates. It's taught as part of the core curriculum at uh, you know, Stanford, Yale, Harvard. Chris, uh, welcome. Thank you, Julian. It's great to be here. As folks may not necessarily know, I am just back from South Korea yesterday and heading off to Washington, D.C. and Spain next. So I'm glad we had a chance to actually record something during this time. And you're surprisingly very energetic. So uh, I, I don't know how you do it, Chris, uh, one of your magical powers. So we're discussing a topic that uh, you know is top of mind for me and something I've been thinking about a lot this week. And actually, I wanted to get your input before you know, moving to next steps on you know, my work, uh, which is the tension between taking market risk uh, well, not taking market risk mm -hmm. and then not competing. So, so maybe it, it, like the right way, place to start is, Chris, what is market risk and why do you not want to take market risk? And what's the alternative to taking market risk? Absolutely. So market risk is just basically what are the chances that this is going to be something that people spend money on? That's how you define a market. And classically speaking, you might say, well, this is a brand new market, in which case people say, well, are you taking on market risk? So, for example, and we've been using this example a lot, when we go back in time to the start of the Internet age, we would say, okay, how much market risk is there? And the same holds true today, right? We're facing a similar situation with the AI revolution. And so people have varying uh, perceptions of how much market risk there is. Ultimately, someone's going to be right, but there can be a lot of different opinions along the way. Now, one of the ways to be successful in life is to go into a marketplace where you can really dominate and win the market. That's the whole principle of blitzscaling. We want you to win a winner-take-most market. And having competition makes it harder for you to win those markets. But on the other hand, if there's market risk and the market never develops, you're going to fail as well. And so blitzscaling and any startup activity is a delicate balance of finding a market niche where you believe that you can be number one, but also where you are fairly certain that the market is going to be a big and valuable market in the end. And companies can fail both ways. They can fail by entering a market which is already established and not succeeding in becoming the leader. And they can fail by entering a market which they dominate, but ultimately does not become a big market, at least not in the short run. One of the great examples of this is one of the companies in my own career, which is PBWorks. We went into the wiki software market, and ultimately the market was not big enough. The wiki software market was limited. I thought that it was gonna be something that everyone was going to use, and it turns out that it ended up being a niche product. Ironically enough, we have come around to having a market that is similar to the wiki market that actually seems to be large enough, and that's the collaboration market that Notion dominates. Yeah. Notion is at its heart a wiki product, but adds much more than just wiki software. 
And it is not focused on the narrow use case that wikis were focused on, which was to say group authoring of a definitive document, and is far more focused on simple collaboration of individuals and smaller groups. And that redefinition has allowed Notion to build a significant business, whereas there is no such thing as a publicly traded pure play wiki player. The closest would be something like Atlassian, of which its Confluence Wiki is one of many products, if not its dominant one. So examples of companies that didn't take market risk uh, would be, you know, every, almost all the companies people know. So yes. Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, Google. So, so essentially, let's just say Google is the last one I put, uh, I, I noted, you know, Yahoo already had a search product. What were the chances that nobody wanted to do search? I mean, low. Um, And uh, the the question here is, why was it okay for Amazon, Google, Facebook, Tesla to execute with such clear competition, right? Like Amazon had competition from Barnes and Nobles. Uh, Why was it okay for them to ha- to compete, um, and, and it, because like taking no market risk was obviously the right move for them, but then there's something unclear about how how did it play out that they were able to compete head to head with with other businesses and win, and um, I think part of the 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 answer here has to do with platform shifts, and maybe Chris, can you unpack the Amazon, uh, you know, scenario or case, and uh, if I would explain how that, like, that was propelled by the shift in platform to the web. Absolutely. So I want you to turn back the clock to the year 1994 when Amazon was founded. Clearly, there was already a market for books. Books have been around a long time, even before Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. Well, that really sort of sparked that original revolution. And in the United States, bookselling was dominated by a couple of big players, namely Barnes and Noble and Borders. Those were the two superstore category killers and had made a lot of money doing so. And then Amazon comes along and Jeff Bezos says, you know what, I'm gonna create Earth's biggest bookstore and he creates Amazon, the first online bookstore, close to the first online bookstore. And the question is, was Amazon taking on market risk? Well, in one sense, it was not taking on market risk because it was noted there was a market for books. People were buying billions of dollars of books. But in another sense, he was taking on market risk because nobody had bought books online. Maybe there were a few things people bought online, some computers, on Usenet groups, transactions handled by email, handing money physically off uh, as you picked up the computer, but nothing like what Amazon would become. And so the market risk being taken was will this market develop? Will people buy things online? Now, this is something that people could disagree about. To somebody like me, looking at the internet, it would seem obvious, and I think it was also obvious to Jeff Bezos, that the market for what we eventually called e-commerce would be huge. Because at the end of the day, it is more convenient to sit in your house and order a book than it is to drive to a bookstore, discover that the book isn't there, curse, and then drive to a different bookstore. So it is a superior way to buy that particular kind of object. And the other thing is the the reason people said, oh, well, this e-commerce thing is not going to take off is absurd. They would say, well, 
are people going to trust putting their credit card online? And the response was always, well, you hand it to a minimum wage stranger every day when you're in a restaurant. What makes you think that is safe? And the other is, well, will people really adopt the internet? Are they going to miss the ability to look at the books in person? And I would say, well, that's why you're starting with books. Every book is exactly the same. It's not like you're getting different variations and you're picking it from the store like produce or something. It's one of the reasons why produce has been one of the last things to really successfully move over to e-commerce. So in that sense, Amazon was able to enter into a market that was relatively new that didn't really have incumbent players. And that market was the e-commerce market. However, the side, the other part of it is, well, hold on. You just said that there was a book market and that Barnes and Noble and Borders were these dominant players. Why couldn't they also dominate online book selling? And this is one of the reasons why it is so difficult for incumbents to fully capitalize on a platform shift. And it happens over and over again that the incumbents fail. The exceptions where they actually succeed are, are rare, and they're the ones we talk about, like face shift and the shift Facebook and the shift to mobile. In the case of Barnes and Noble and Borders, they had an entire infrastructure and business and team and everything else structured around how do we efficiently purchase books, manage the logistics of those books, of getting them into warehouses and ultimately into superstores. And so everything is optimized for that versus Amazon, which could optimize for, at least initially, a single warehouse or even drop shipping and the ability to send packages via mail. It's a completely different set of activities. And the infrastructure that is optimized for one thing is not going to be optimized for the other. And so the illusion of having a competitive advantage because you're incumbent is I have all these assets, I have this brand, I can just turn around and immediately use it to succeed. And that would make sense if you were just looking at it on paper and not in any of the details. Because on paper would say, oh, you know, Barnes and Noble doesn't have to build warehouses. It already has bookshops and it can just have people go to the bookshops and pick up the books or it can ship the books from the bookstores. And so it should be easier. And in actuality, it's harder because that is not optimized. And barnesandnoble.com ended up being a reasonably successful business. And that's because it had a completely different tech stack and a completely different supply chain than Barnes and Noble, the bookstores themselves. So the bookstore assets are actually not a benefit, are not something that helps you manage the platform shift. The only thing that helps you is the brand itself. And so that's why it's possible when there's a platform shift for new entrants to swarm in and dominate a market, even if the previous platform was dominated by a set of incumbents. So there, there's so much insight in there, Chris. I, I think I'll, I'll pick a few that, that feel really important. One is Amazon, it seems like Amazon made a lot of innovations, but they did not. They made one innovation or one change and executed on it really well. So that one change was to bring the bookstore online. Um, and, and that included creating you know, profiles and, and reviews and all that, but that was all about doing the bring online effectively. That leads me to, to, to another point that I think is really important what you said, which is having a superior, a vastly superior product. Yes. So it doesn't matter if you make this shift, the small shift. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters if your product is not vastly superior to the incumbent. So you need to make one small shift out of many 
keep as many things the same as possible, and then execute on that shift in a manner that makes the product dramatically superior. And then the other element is that they were leveraging a shift in platform. And when you have a shift in platform, the whole the logic of the platform is so different that incumbents cannot compete or cannot keep up. That's correct. And that's why the biggest technology waves, the startup waves, occur when there's a new technology. The dot-com boom riding the internet, web 2.0 boom riding the rise of the broadband internet and being able to use responsive web pages and the like. The mobile computing revolution, writing capacitative touchscreens and the touchscreen interface, and today the AI revolution. So all of these things represent a shift that opens up new possibilities, but it only matters if the possibility creates better products. If it doesn't create better products, people are going to stick with what they already know. Novelty is enough for a limited set of early adopters, but mainstream adoption only occurs when the product is actually superior. We're going to dig into another example, which is not platform shift uh, related, just Bumble versus Tinder. Mm -hmm. But before uh, we do that, I'll remind everyone to like this video and subscribe and share it with friends who are founders or are considering starting a business because this might be helpful to them. It would have been helpful to me when I was starting my first business for sure. Uh, but I want to ask you about the AI piece. Yeah. So. Is AI a new platform? What makes it a new platform? When is it a new platform? So AI is a new platform because it allows you to substitute computing power for human brain power in a much broader array of disciplines. So even something as simple as a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet is substituting computing power for human brain power, but is doing something very specific, which is saying adding and subtracting and so on. It's enormously valuable. I would argue Microsoft Excel may very well be the most important piece of software ever created, but it is a very specialized form of substitution for the human brain. In comparison, something like ChatGPT can be used and applied to almost any kind of problem that human brain power is required on, whether it is writing a book report or coming up with a travel plan, writing a sonnet, you name it. It's extremely general purpose in a way that previous computing was not. And so I think that that is a part of it. And the other thing, which we talked about a little bit as we we're getting ready for this recording, is that OpenAI made the very clever approach of releasing ChatGPT as a chat interface. The chat interface is, is incredibly powerful because we have spent the past 20 years training people on this as the interface of their choice. Most people, chatting is the most important form of communication they do on a daily basis, especially for the younger generation. And so having a product that neatly taps into that and integrates exactly with existing workflows is incredibly powerful. Yeah, and, and one of the things I think you believe strongly is that a lot of the other platform shifts, so let's say the shift to mobile, was really about the interface. Um, it wasn't that much about the new functionality that you could bring the phone around and that it had a camera and stuff like that. That stuff mattered. But fundamentally, the way that you would have done to identify, hey, this is an actual business that is taking advantage of this platform show that's native to mobile is that it was on a touch interface. Similarly, and here maybe I'm taking a bit of a stretch, 
a lot of the you know AI innovations that are truly taking advantage of the platform shift, a lot of them would would be you know chat based. Is that something that you'd agree with? I think that it's true for now. I think there will be other forms of AI in the future, and it remains to be seen what those are. But I think that the chat interface should not be underestimated. I mean, just think of mobile computing. We had prior devices that would allow you to access the internet, that would allow you to communicate, that allow you to take pictures. Cameras have been part of a phone for a really long time. And yet all these things came together in the iPhone and changed everything. Why? Because of the computing interface, the touchscreen interface, which is more suited for mobile use and which is also just more intuitive for human beings in general. And I would argue that if the touchscreen, the touchscreen in combination with the mobile form factor is incredibly powerful. But of those two, it is clearly the case that because we developed the mobile form factor before the touchscreen, that the mobile form factor was a niche product until the touchscreen arrived. So what we're saying here is you want to take very little market risk. And taking little market risk means competing with others more. Or you can, you can take on, it is possible for you to take on market risk that others perceive to be large and thus that they're discouraged, but you perceive to be small. So this is Jeff Bezos going after e-commerce. I think in retrospect, he was clearly right and everyone else was wrong, but at the time it scared other people off. And you should be more comfortable with competition from incumbents when there is a platform shift incumbents could mean kind of like big incumbents so let's say uh you know barnes and nobles incumbents can be you know more nimble new incumbents that are built in the previous platform yes. um so we, we talked about fintech example brex where it's very unlikely that a company like brex unless they had like a truly you know visionary ceo which there are almost none would be able to make the shift to AI if AI was relevant for them. I, I suspect it's not. But there is a type of competition you want to avoid. Yes. And what is it? Yes, the competition you want to avoid are startups of approximately the same age that do not have an existing legacy that they have to deal with that are well-funded by venture capitalists. And that is because that is actually a level playing field. You versus Microsoft is not, not actually a level playing field. It's not fair for Microsoft to have to compete with you when there's all this legacy that they're carrying and you're able to start from scratch. But other people who are starting from scratch and have more money and have better employees, that's terrible competition. And that's one of the reasons why once a space has a set of competitors, it's very unlikely that venture capitalists are going to fund it further because their opinion is, well, geez, you know, I'm fine with funding someone to go up against Google. I'm not fine with somebody to go up funding someone to go up against champions from Sequoia and Greylock and Andreessen. And especially if they have network effects that have already started kicking in. Yes. Because once you already have an early lead and the network effects have kicked in, it becomes harder and harder for anyone to catch up. That is the first scalar principle of blitzscaling. And when people do this, perhaps mistakenly, they still see terrible results. Facebook's success prompted people to fund a series of competitors like High Five and Bebo, which people thought, oh, well, you know, it's only one fifth the size of Facebook, but it's one-tenth the cost. So maybe it will uh, even out right over time. And the market value of Bebo or High Five will increase. 
to reach the same multiple as Facebook on a per user basis? And the answer is no, it doesn't because there are network effects. And that means you are never going to maintain your current position vis-a-vis -vis Facebook. You're just going to die on the vine and you are never going to get a chance to quote unquote arbitrage that difference in valuation. That's why it's worth paying higher valuations for market leaders because there are these competitive factors that most people overlook. So up till now, we've been talking about why or why you should be comfortable taking like competing with people yeah. when there is a platform shift and you're taking advantage of that platform shift and, and, and the incumbents are not. Now, there's another situation where you can be comfortable with what appears to be competition. And that situation is highlighted by the Bumble uh, example, which is when you are taking on, you are solving a different problem, even though it seems like the functionality of your product is very similar. Yeah. If you are solving a different problem and especially a different problem for people who have more power, then you can still win it and, and maybe explain the bumble uh you know how that applies to bumble absolutely uh, so this is a fascinating one so the notion of online dating is quite old and match.com is probably the original one there have been many companies over the years that have been successful in this area and that is because there is a fundamental problem which is human beings want to find a mate that is something that evolution has ingrained in us and so we will try very hard to do this and anything that helps us achieve that is probably going to make a lot of money. So that's why dating sites have been very valuable over time and in fact are the dominant way that people develop romantic relationships today. Tinder came along and swept aside many of the previous generation of dating sites by be providing a much better interface. So their recognition was, you know, people claim that they care about all this stuff, but in actuality, people are pretty damn shallow and we just wanna make it faster and easier for them to match. And so Tinder introduced the stream of swipe left, swipe right, making it super easy, reducing the friction to connecting with others. And it occurs to me- very successful, yes. It occurs to me that's how it actually was a platform shift. So it was yes, just a it platform was. shift to mobile. Correct, it is taking advantage of a mobile platform shift because the swiping would not occur except in mobile. However, Tinder was the first attempt to do this and they were very successful and there's network effects associated with every dating site because it's a marketplace. And so that made them very successful. And most people thought, okay, that's it. Tinder's, Tinder's done. The market's over. Nobody's going to be able to beat them. And then along comes Bumble, which is actually started by a founder who had worked at Tinder and who had a unique insight because unlike the other people who had created Tinder, she was a woman. And so what she realized is that Tinder is a terrible product for women because they get onto this platform and are barraged by an endless series of terrible come-ons from men. And it makes it a displeasure to work with and drives women away from the platform. And in fact, that's where Bumble comes in. Bumble is very similar to Tinder, same kind of interface innovation. The only difference is that women are the only people who are allowed to initiate contact. Now, let me preface this by saying we're going to talk about men and women in a very binary fashion. We are going to talk primarily about heterosexual men and women because that is the majority of the market. Rest assured, we are not some sort of troglodytes who deny the existence of gender fluidity or of different forms of sexuality. This is just from a commercial standpoint, focusing on the things that are the broadest slice of the mainstream. And of course, other platforms like Grindr have been very successful as well. 
So with that caveat, the reason Bumble works is because it better reflects the actual nature that we've evolved with. So over the millions of years that the human race has existed, we have had a very simple division of labor where men provide the sperm and women carry the babies to term. And this creates an extremely different set of incentives. For men, the set of incentives are to seek as many mates as possible, to seek to spread their seed as widely as possible. And this is sort of summed up by the default, uh, the default condition of any male is celibacy. If they choose to do nothing, they will likely end up celibate, not pass any on genes, and they'll be wiped out from history and evolution. So men are extremely action-oriented as far as this is concerned. And Tinder is exactly aligned with this. It makes it super easy for men to very quickly swipe and send messages to women. And in fact, if it were truly optimized for men, it would allow them to create a bot that would just send a single message to every single woman the instant they swiped. All right. Bumble is different. What they recognize is that the problem for women is not taking action and playing the numbers game. It is selection. Women are carrying the children to term. They generally have their choice of romantic partners, but they need to choose carefully because they need a romantic partner who will in fact help with the raising of the child and help provide the resources that will allow them to successfully raise that child and launch it into the world. And the women who did not prioritize selection, their children died early on because there was not enough food to go around or a tiger came and killed them or what have you. And they were wiped off from the face of the earth and from evolution. And so Bumble taps into that by allowing only women to communicate first. It means that we are now in a field of selection. The women are naturally oriented towards selection and probably do a better job of selecting. And then the men who are selected know that there is a much greater chance that they'll have a romantic connection than the 500 Tinder swipes they did over on Tinder. As this results in general, in a better experience. And that's why Bumble is a successful company and worth over $2 billion. There are groups that lose out. Specifically, the groups that lose out are unattractive and unappealing men and women who are reluctant to make the first move. But because in this particular marketplace, the women are the more powerful players, it makes more sense to cater to their needs a la Bumble than Tinder. So what's going on here is Bumble is solving a different problem for different people, mm -hmm. even though their shift is a small code, like a two lines small of code. change in the two code. Two lines of code. It's probably what it is. And another example that might be Salesforce, where you know their CRM product was the same as all the other CRM products, except they were solving a, a different problem for CFOs, while everyone else was solving a problem for uh, salespeople. That's right. And uh, you can be comfortable taking on uh, competition or competing when you're actually not taking on competition. You're actually competing on, uh, you're, sol you're building a different, you're solving a different problem for different people, yeah. which is in a certain way not competing at all. That's right. And again, this goes to show you the danger of labels, right? People are very keen on this notion of a category in the market, and they treat everything within the categories as if it's competing with each other. And the fact is, a category like dating sites covers a lot of things. A category like social networks covers a lot of things, and you need to think clearly and specifically about what you're actually doing 
who you're actually serving and who you're actually competing with. And in all the examples we've talked about, what they have in common is that you need to squint to see what is actually going on. Yes. So when you look at Amazon, it does seem like they're making a lot of changes. But they're not. They're making one change and then executing flawlessly. Um, when you look at Bumble, it seems like they're the same product as Tinder. But they're not. They are, they are a different product for a different audience. Um, and you, you need to have clarity around this stuff to be able to know if you as a founder have a chance at competing. Um, and thankfully for me uh, and for everyone else, I have Chris here to help me think this stuff through. So Chris, thank you so much for your time today. This has been very clarifying because this was something that I was thinking about all week and wasn't able to you know, wrap my head around. Um, Thank you to uh, the folks who uh, you know jumped into the chat of our live stream. We actually have a question, Chris, which we need to oh, answer. If you're not, um, uh, you know, so if you're listening to this recorded, please join our live stream next time. We do them in theory every Friday uh, evening, and uh, it's an opportunity to ask Chris questions. And uh, thank you to uh, our team. Jeremy, Shalok, and Brendan for putting everything together. Um, and uh, Chris, I'll see you, I think, in two weeks. Two weeks. I, think. I will be yeah. in Spain next week, so two weeks from now. Mm, you'll have to bring me back. Well, you have to sh mail me some jamon. Um, this is my all-time favorite food. Ah, I will have to eat some in your, in your honor. I'm afraid that yeah. I don't think I'm allowed to ship that around the world. They usually uh, confiscate that at customs, but I will eat some in your honor. Yeah, they have these Museo de Hamon, um, which I love the name. It's like a museum of uh, Hamon. So um, anyways, guys, remember to like this video. Please share it with uh, founders or prospective founders that you know. I think this kind of like idea of not taking market risk is so not talked about for some reason. And it's so important, uh, the kind of concept of when you should be comfortable taking on competition. I was personally, when I was doing research for this, incapable of finding anybody who talked about it. I actually emailed James Courier to ask him, and he said that he didn't really know. So Wonderful. you can only get this from Chris. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad I was able to do that. And again, as always, it is a pleasure to be working with you. Hopefully at the end of this, we have a blitz-scaled market leader. But even if we do not, hopefully this will provide lots of great information and insights for all the entrepreneurs out there.